Father, as we open your word, we praise you and we give you great thanks for we we are so lost without it. You give us instruction, you give us correction and admonishment. You give us hope and encouragement. And oh Lord, this morning, I ask that you would by your spirit work in all of our hearts and minds that we would truly, truly see your word, understand the truth, see our own hearts, and respond accordingly, Lord. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we began a new series, What It Means Becoming a Church on Mission. And uh, we looked at last week how we were made from the very beginning by God to be on mission. God created us. God created the world. God created everything so that we would be a people on mission. Uh, Genesis 1.26, where God says, well, even why he created man. He created them, male and female. He created them in his likeness, in his image. And he said, be fruitful, multiply, go and subdue the earth. And they were to go as image bearers of God, reflecting the image of God throughout the earth, creating the garden city within which righteousness would reign and rule. That was their mission. However, as we looked at, they failed. They failed quickly, failed right away. But God wasn't done with us. He promised to give a son who would deliver us. And in the meantime, there would be enmity between God's people and the serpent's people. And God's people, as God's people sought to establish God's reign and rule on the earth, and the serpent's people sought to establish the serpent's reign and rule on the earth, there was war and collision. And often, if you know your Bible history, you realize it looks pretty bleak and grim. It looked bad. I mean, it got to the point with Noah, we're down to one. And so it looks like, oh no, God's promise, his word will not be fulfilled. It will not come true. And no, it, and surely it does. We looked how God, God is, has been on mission and continues to be on mission even throughout the ages. And we look specifically at how Israel was successful on the mission under Joshua. Under Joshua, Israel went into the land and conquered the enemy and did wonderfully well. Things were great. Things were looking marvelous. Israel was going to go and establish God's kingdom in the land. But once he died, they got off mission and eventually began serving the gods of the surrounding culture. We learn a lot. You realize we learn a lot, especially when we look at Israel, because we look at Israel on a mission in the, in the land. We, when we do that, when we look to them, we are seeing a physical representation of what the church is doing spiritually or is to do spiritually in the world. Israel was commissioned to go and take the land, cleanse it from evil through the sword, and establish God's kingdom within it. The church was commissioned by Jesus to go take the nations cleanse them through, from evil through the gospel, and establish God's kingdom within it. The discouraging part, however, is that the church also gets off mission just like Israel did. She often settles into an area, gets comfortable. The members start developing 
their own personal missions and eventually begin serving the gods of their area. This morning, we're going to look into this a little bit more closely so we can see how it is that we get off mission and how it is we get back on mission. Because this is the way God reveals to us as we're going to look here. God reveals the way. What happens? How do we get off mission? And how do we get back on mission? Well, to begin with, let's look at the way we get off mission. If you look at Judges chapter 2, the first thing that happens is we pull back from God's mission and we get busy with our own personal mission. If you look at verses 1 and 2, it says, The angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bacham and said, I led you up from Egypt and brought you to the land of which I swore to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. And why have you done this thing? Last week, as you recall, if you look back in chapter 1, verses 27 and following, it, just, it was this refrain about how all these tribes, it says, starting, look at verse 27, however, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Sheen and its villages. And that's, it goes throughout, and all these tribes, they did not drive them out. They did not drive them out. It did not drive them out. Well, their mission was to drive them out and to tear down their altars. But what did they do? They got off mission began settling in. They made covenants with the people of the land and they didn't tear down their altars. So Israel not only allowed the people to stay there, she allowed them to worship their own gods. And how do we know this? The very fact that the text says they did not tear down their altars. Now, In order for us to see the connection here to us, to our situation right now, we have to see that the Old Covenant, in the Old Covenant, God's people, their mission was physical, where our mission is spiritual. The Old Covenant was a very physical covenant. Everything about it is administration was physical, physical, physical. Very fleshly, very tangible. Everything, even their sacrifice, they, they see, they, they see, they're seeing blood continually. They have to chop up animals and they put them on the altar. It was very visceral and, 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 uh, gross in a lot of ways. And, and, and even going and taking the land, they go in with sword and shield and they're slicing people. I mean, it's, this is a, this isn't just physical in the sense that you can see it. It's physical in the sense that you're in the middle of it and it's nasty. But in the New Covenant, it's not like that. We deal with the spiritual. Because God knew all along the real issue in man was not the physical issue, but the spiritual issue of the heart. Just look at Jesus, for example. Who is the true Joshua? He went into the land after being baptized into the Jordan. Joshua and Israel baptized into the Jordan. They move into the land and and, and, and and conquer the land. Jesus is baptized into the Jordan, and then he moves into the land, and he begins conquering his enemies. But he didn't go with sword or shield, did he, as Joshua did? He went with word and prayer, casting out demons, healing the sick and raising the dead, while he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom. Jesus, like Joshua, attacked and didn't let up. He went after their souls. He destroyed their idols and demolished the works of the devil. 
He was a, his was a spiritual conquest, while Joshua's was a physical. And because of the spiritual-physical connection, it allows us to look at the Old Covenant and look at Israel and see in the physical form ourselves, and so what's often going on spiritually. So the connection is this. So when we settle in, we begin to focus on our own little world. We stop driving out the enemy in our midst and leave up the altars. We're, we, we are off mission, and we're disobeying the Lord. And we can begin to see in the text what happens as a result of this. If you look at the first part of verse 3, Therefore I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your side. They are going to become, as a result of what you've done, and you're failing to be on mission, and, and because you're not driving them out, they now are going to turn and become a thorn in your side. We find that the conduct we should be driving out through mission becomes irritating to us, in other words. Just think about this for a moment. Think of the unbelieving world around us. Think of all the things that drive you crazy in the area in which we live, the Seattle area. People love their dogs more than they love their kids. They celebrate homosexuality, same-sex marriage, transgenderism, and all manner of perversion. Abortion is a right and a privilege. Taxes and laws abound at such a rate that it's hard to keep up with them. More and more Christians become oppressed. Our voice gets silenced. Our way of living becomes hated and mocked. And we are pushed out into the margins. Question, why does this happen? It happens because the church is no longer on mission, has settled into the land, and is simply living alongside of the people of the land in a comfortable manner, trying to settle in, and God will have none of it. So he makes them a thorn in his people's flesh. You know, there was a time in this country when the church was on mission and was driving out unbelief and bringing the kingdom of God in an unprecedented manner. And even in those times, unbelievers, they weren't a thorn in the flesh like it's happening to us now. They were being sought after, they were being converted, and they were being brought into the kingdom. And as a result, you could see that evil was being pushed out of the land and righteousness was being established through the gospel. But as it is, we no longer are a mission, and God makes the unbelievers a thorn in our flesh. And that isn't the worst of it. Because if you look at verse 3, it goes, it, it goes from there, and here's a progression. It becomes a thorn in our flesh. We settle in. We get off mission. And then we actually begin serving their gods, believe it or not. Verse 3, the second part of verse 3. So after he says, they'll become a thorn in your side, and their gods shall be a snare to you. You know, here's, here's the sad part. When I read those words, their God shall be a snare to you, it's hard for us to understand and make the connection. We don't see ourselves today serving the gods of the land, and here's why. Because we don't live in a culture that has a carved image in the town center that everybody goes to and bows down to and serves. 
We don't have that. We live in a time and an age that is different than that which Israel faced thousands of years ago. The gods of our age are science, self, money, entertainment, drugs, alcohol, celebrities, and the like. These are the gods we trust. These are the gods we serve. These are the gods we pursue for our happiness and well-being. And to see how this is the case, we have to understand the nature of a god. And to do that, we have to understand matters of the heart. Because a god is a person or thing that you look to for protection, you look to to, to bring well-being, you look to for your health, you look to for your happiness and your life. And the reason you serve and obey a god is because you believe they're the ones who will provide these things for you. This is why it says what it does. If you look down at verse 11, that verse, he says, Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, or Baals. We say Baals, but in proper Hebrew, it's Baals. And I, ever since I took Hebrew and started translating, I have the hardest time saying things. Uh, because when I, when, I, when I say Baals, that sounds so dumb. Everybody, you grew up, everybody heard Baal, right? Baal worship. But uh, anyway, Baal worship, so you understand what I'm talking about. The text says served. Now, it's served, Baal or Baal, because that is what you do to receive the benefits from the God. So if you want to be healthy, you want to be happy, you want to be protected, and you want to be taken care of, what do you do? You serve the gods. You listen to them, and you do what their priests say you should do to please them. Because, guess what? If you don't, they act against you. So, for example, faithfully serve the fertility god, and you will have lots of children and flourishing crops. Serve the sea god, and all will go well with you on the sea. Serve the rain gods, and you will have rain in its season, so you, everything will grow. You serve this god, you, do, you obey this god, you do what pleases the god, and his favor will be upon you. So the thing you serve, the thing you trust, the thing you lean on, the thing you look to, to give you what you need, that's your God. That's your God. Now, understanding that, it makes it easier for us to see how we make gods for ourselves in our day. In this age, we serve and trust and look to Self. We look to science. We look to our jobs. We look to our money. We look to our bank accounts. We look to our entertainment. We look to our friends. We look to our family. We look to our drinks or whatever will provide for us what is, what should be gotten from God. These are the gods of this age and these are the gods many in the church serve as well. Now please, please hear me carefully. Listen to what I'm about to say. Because I believe that many in this room here right now are serving other gods. We bring idols into the house of God. 
And how do I know that? Well, because Jesus said that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And we know that, that God has commanded us. We know that the Lord our God, we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's what we know. So if the, if the love for the Lord your God, if you love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, Jesus says out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what you do is you listen to conversation. Loves will come out. What do we talk about? And when we hear and we think and we listen to the conversations, you can hear that our trust, our love, the one we, things we serve, the things we look to, the things we delight in, are ourselves, our money, our food, our drinks, our friends, our families, and so many things besides the Lord our God. And it's almost like a mysterious lack of conversation about the goodness and awesome greatness of our God. See, the, see, the conversation doesn't lie. Jesus says, out of the abundance of your heart, your mouth will speak, and you can't help it. You can also hear it in the things we fear and the way we think about the suffering of our lives. You know, the irony of it all is if you took out a dollar bill right now, it would say, in God we trust. It's a lie. In these bills we trust. Now, how can I say that? Well, what happens when the bills go away? All God has to do to test the heart is take an idol away from you in some way, some capacity. So we say, oh, and the God we trust. And then, you know, as long as my bank account is full. And God we trust, as long as I have a wonderful, well-paying job. And God we trust, as long as my 4OK is doing fabulous. But we speak with our mouths, but our hearts are far from him because our heart throb, our heart throb, what is it we love? What is it we trust? What is it we freak out about? Oh, you could take God almost out of the equation, but as long as I have cash. Take, okay, you want to find out, take the, take the account away, take the job away, take the 401k away, and watch them writhe and shriek and freak out. Who's your God? And God will do these kinds of things. You know, it's, it's sometimes it's very strange for us to think about serving other gods. Because we're wanting to serve the Lord. We're not walking in open sin. We come to worship regularly. We read our Bibles. We pray. We aren't sleeping around. We aren't thieves stealing things. We work hard. We do all these things. So it's like, you're saying I serve these other gods. What are you talking about, Dean? It pretty seems to me like I think I try to govern my life around serving the Lord our God. How could we be serving other gods? Well, the problem is, again, it's easy when it's physical. It's not so easy when it's spiritual or matters of the heart. And all you have to do, do you want to know right now, this is what you do to find out, to, to search your heart, to know, are there idols in my heart? Do I serve other gods? This is what you have to do. This is how you can examine your heart. If you really want to expose your heart, expose these idols, ask yourself this. 
What in my life would I not be willing to fully and completely surrender to God? Right now, 100%. What would I hesitate to give up for him? Would you give him your bank account? How about your job, your 401k, your family, your children, your entertainment, your computer? We could go on, right? This gets personal. This gets really close to what's going on in our hearts. And all we have to do, do you want to know, do you want to see the little, the little creatures in here? You know, as Calvin did say, this heart, it's an idol factory. And it isn't very long. We can drift away from serving the Lord our God. To, next thing you know, we have idols, but we're like, we're like Israel and Isaiah, where he constantly talks about them. You draw near to me with your mouth, but your hearts are far from me. You actually, if you really want to know, if you really want to look, you can see that you serve other gods. And here's the crazy part. I stand before you, and I was convicted terribly in my own life, realizing that you could even serve the God of ministry. How easy it is for, for my identity and my love and everything to get caught up in my in ministry. How well I'm doing and, and, and how, how people are responding and what's going on. And that, that became an idol, an idol in my life because all God has to do is mess with it a little bit and it exposes your heart. And then you see, well, you can make an idol out of ministry. Because my God, and then I start serving and I'm a, I'm a guy who gets addicted to planning and strategies and, and figuring everything out as if all it is are formulas and things to figure out. Serving the God of strategy, the gods of plans, and then what I can do is I can formulate and I can do these things and I can have, and I can do them in such a way that God will, will, will add His blessing to it. That's, that's idolatry. And it happens all the time. You know, when we look to get anything to give us what only God can give us, we are looking to a thing, and it's become an idol to us. So the question is, the question is for every one of us, the question is right now, who is the supreme love of your life? If the Lord your God is not your hope, is not your provider, is not your protector, is not your delight, is not your stronghold, is not your joy, is not your life, then some other God is. And here's the worst part of it all. The worst part of it all is how when we go after other gods like this, the Lord our God removes his presence and power from amongst us and begins disciplining us. Just look at verse 14 of this chapter. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. Why? Because they have forsaken him. He says in verse, look at verse 13, just before that. They forsook the Lord their God and went and served these other gods. So the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. So he delivered them into the hands of plunderers who despoiled them. And he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity, as the Lord had said and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were greatly distressed. 
The Lord did this and he disciplined. You know why he did this to his people? That eventually you see the pattern in Judges, if you walk through Judges, that eventually the people got so bothered, so annoyed, got to the place where God seems so against them, they cried out, God, please, please deliver us, save us. And guess what God would do? He would save them. You know, when you look at our own situation, so what ends up happening in our day, in our age, in our culture, the same thing, the presence and power of God pulls away. And there's a strange lack And almost it seems like God is working against us. We no longer sense his presence in our lives or in the church. We make no impact on the community and culture around us. We become lethargic and almost completely indifferent. Most of our prayers seem to go unanswered. Next to no one is converted and comes into the church. Only a couple people show up to a prayer meeting because why bother? And no one is really stirred or zealous for the expansion of God's kingdom. Who gives a rip, really? I'm busy. You know, God wants us to see all this and be incredibly bothered. Read the Psalms. And when God's not answering, God's presence and power is not amongst them. He starts, God, where are you? What's going on? It's time to say, search our hearts, oh God. You can guarantee that you guys, all of us, any of us, bring idols in here, God is not pleased. And if we think for a moment God is going to show up in power and his presence is going to be here, when we worship other gods, we are so deluded and deceived. Because the only way we're going to experience the presence of power of God on our behalf, and the only way we're going to get back on mission is if we first deal with the idols, it's the thing that needs to happen. You know, here's what we can do. I mean, oh, here's the way you get back on mission. Oh, no, we're not on mission. Let's get back going on mission. No. Wrong answer. Do you remember Israel in the wilderness? When God said, go spy out the land. And they come back. See what you find? They came back, and ten of them were overwhelmed, not with the goodness and the glory that they would inherit, but with the giants and the fortified cities in the land. Two guys said, no, let's go do it. God is with us, Caleb and Joshua. But because they said there's not a chance we're going, and they turned the heart of Israel against God, and they filled them full of unbelief, they wouldn't go. And then God says he brings judgment down upon them and says, fine, you're stuck in the wilderness for 40 years till this generation dies, and you're not going into the land. And my hand is against you. Well, ho, what do they think? What have we done? And then they ran off to try to go take the land. Because now we're going to go do what God told us. And Moses said, don't go. God is not with you. They went anyway. And it was a disaster, a total disaster. They took them out and they fled and they ran back. And you know what? The very first thing we need to do is not like we think, hey, we're not on mission. What's happening? The people, God, there's, there's like a, there's an absence of the presence and the power of God in our midst. Would you, you know, an unbeliever should be able to walk in here and sense, whoa, God is amongst them. They shouldn't come in here and go, oh, geez, what time is it? What's going on? I wonder when this is over. Seahawks are playing later. 
this is what we need to do, people. We can take heed. I mean, Israel constantly, they, they, they messed up bad, but they knew what it meant to rend their hearts and turn to the Lord their God as well. This morning, what was read for us is Joel chapter 2, verse 12 and following. And it says there at the beginning, it says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. And rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. For he is gracious and merciful. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. Or how about James when he's speaking to the church and ministering to them in James chapter 4, verses 4 through 10? You adulterous people. Hear what he said? Who did he say that to? The church. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is, it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he is made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and He will exalt you. We can't make light of our idols. We can't think that this is somehow, well, this is normal. This is what Christians do. This is the Christian life. No. And that's why unless God sees the, else to see the evil of it, that we would turn to something else, we would lean on, look to other things besides Him to be our soul, our, our soul support provider, protector, the one that we look to. When you're in trouble, what do you look to? Who is your trust? Who is your hope? Who is your joy? Who is your life? Do you realize that this is, the, remember the words of Jesus and how serious it is. He says these words for a reason. Listen, Mark, uh, Matthew chapter 10 verse 37. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. What? Yeah, that's what you call lordship. I am Lord. And God, I am the ultimate treasure. Jesus didn't say this because he's against mothers and fathers or sons and daughters or children or spouses or any other good gift that he gives. He said this because God must be our God and him alone. He must be our everything. He must be our source of protection, our source of provision and life and joy. He has got to be the ultimate treasure. Listen to this. He cannot and he will not be second. We have to understand that. But yet, what ends up happening in our hearts? Sorry, God. You're second. Third. Fourth. What would you be unwilling to give up for him? How about your children? There's a deep love for your children. 
Examine your hearts. Do you love them more than you love God? That's, the, that's, what he, that's always the issue. And the thing is, that's the, what our hearts do. Our hearts are weird and nasty that way. We go after things and we make idols of them. And it's, the crazy part is it's the only really way that we can truly love something is because when we love them and we don't depend on them to give us something back, we can honestly love them. I'm not looking for them. You, you, you can only love your children properly when God is your first and ultimate love. And he satisfies, and you look at your children, and you want to just love them. You don't want, it's not like you need to figure out how to get stuff from them because you're needy. You know, listen to the words of Jesus. And he says, you know, if you think of, if think this is sacrifice to lay down these idols, to lay down mother and father and children and spouse, and if you do not love me more than these, you cannot have me. Listen to what he says. Following this, but truly, Jesus says, truly I say to you, there is no one who's left houses or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands and with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Do you realize that God isn't looking to take from you? He's looking to give to you. But he will not give to you if your heart is divided. He will not give to you if you're trying to serve him and serve other gods. He will not give himself to you if he's not the Lord your God. He is the greatest treasure your heart could ever possess. When you have God as your one and only God, your heart will feel as though it possesses all things. There's nothing greater you can do than to throw your idols down and turn to God with your whole heart. There's nothing greater. However, I'll bet right now that the enemy is is on full force, working in your mind and heart, trying to convince you that that is not true. God is not your greatest treasure. No, you can't. Here's the other thing. You can't try God out. You can't hold on to your other idols and say, I tried the whole God thing. No, no, you didn't. Because you don't even you don't even know the God thing until you throw the idols down and everything down and come to Him with your whole heart. Try Him like that, and you will find He's the greatest treasure of all. That's what double-minded, double-hearted people do. They try to taste the Lord, just taste partially, so maybe they could try it out a little bit, but still hold on to their idols. You know, you know one of the things that will hold you back right now? I guarantee you, you will not give God your idols and you will not throw them away and you will not serve him alone if you doubt his goodness. If you doubt his love, if you doubt him to be the true treasure, how could you? And this is why the enemy will just constantly be saying to you, no, he's not that good. No, it's not that good. It's a raw deal, bad deal. You give up everything, man. You're going to lose everything. You'll have nothing. Just think of that. It's a lie. I'm telling you, I'll tell you from personal experience, there's no greater treasure than God. You could try everything in this world and nothing will fill you like God. Nothing will satisfy you like God. He is the ultimate treasure. If you turned to God with all your heart 
And you took your idols and you said, none of it. I, I lay it all before you. I give you everything. Here I am fully, completely, all yours, all in, every chip in. I'm not holding chips back, all in, all consecrated, all heart, with all my heart before you, oh God. I'm all in, betting on you. You're the smartest person that ever lived. And anybody who has ever done that will say, Amen. Amen. The greatest of all treasures. As Jesus said, the kingdom of God is like a man who went out to a field and found a great treasure in it. And then he goes and sells everything he has that he might purchase this, this piece of land to get the treasure. And Jesus, the whole time, the treasure standing there before all those people. There the treasure was speaking to them. He's the treasure. If I could plead with Redeemer Church, please, please, don't bring idols in here anymore. They will creep up in your heart, and they will take hold of you. And then you will find yourself loving them. Ask the Lord, is there anything in me? Search me, O God, and know my heart, know my every way. Is there anything? And take that thing and give it completely to God. Wholeheartedly, all chips in, everything in, God, it's yours. You are my God. Give him everything, and he gives you everything. You know, how many have heard this passage, delight yourself in the Lord, and he'll give you the desires of your heart? And how many people... Think that, oh goody, I, I delight myself in the Lord and then I'll get all, the, I have my wish list over here, these 10 other items. These are the desires of my heart. Well, a better way to understand that is when he says giving you the desires of your heart is, is that he fulfills the desires of your heart. He stops your stupid heart from coveting and lusting after all these stupid things. And you begin to like, you, you should be at the place where you despise this stuff in, in comparison to God. You should be able to speak with Paul. I consider all things dung, crap, to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus. Please, don't hold anything back. And you will know the presence and the power of God, the goodness of God will flood in. Do you know in Joel chapter 2 where he tells him to do this? Do you know what happens at the latter part of Joel 2? This is when he's talking about Israel repenting and turning to him with all his heart. He goes on in the last part of that Joel chapter 2 and he talks there about the pouring out of the Spirit. Which we know happened in Acts 2. Do you realize the people in the upper room in Acts 2 were all in? They were all in. They gave up everything to follow Jesus. And may God grant us mercy and grace to go all in and experience his goodness, his power, his love, and that we would be filled with the fullness of God. Amen. Father,
I ask, O Lord, right now for all of us, that you would expose in our hearts any idol, anything we love more than you, anything we would be unwilling to give up to you. I ask, Father, that you would reveal it to us. Show our hearts, expose us. And ask, Father, that we would rend our hearts, fall before you broken, and receive the fullness of your Spirit. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.